Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And today we have with us a very special guest, Kevin Bales. Kevin, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks. Good. Well, before we dive into the conversation of all things ESG, which is the topic of this season of The Biz, let me tell you just a little bit about Kevin and also uh, um, have some fun facts that we'll talk about here in a minute. Kevin is actually a professor of contemporary slavery and the research director of the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham in the UK. In early 2016, um, as well, while he was working at the Wilberforce Institute for the Study of Slavery and Emancipation, an organization known as WISE. They won the Queen's Anniversary Prize, which is often referred to as a knighthood for research institutes. Kevin has done a number of amazing things. We don't even have time to list all of them here, but just a few. He was a co-founder of Free the Slaves in Washington, D.C. The important thing there is to know it's a U.S. sister organization of the Anti-Slavery International, which is the world's oldest human rights group that was founded in 1787. Kevin also serves on an expert working group for Walk Free Foundation's Global Slavery Index, and Bill Gates has described the Global Slavery Index as an important tool to let governments, non-government organizations, NGOs, and businesses take stock and to take action against this terrible, terrible problem. Even today, Kevin serves as a consultant to the United Nations and to several different governments, and most relevant for this podcast, in 2016, he published a really interesting book called Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World, the breakthrough work that identified modern slavery as a contributor to global climate change, a la The Connection all the way up from not just social, but also the environmental side of ESG. So Kevin, amazing, amazing bio. We're just so fortunate to have you here today. But I have to say one thing, just for the audience to know, Kevin actually is a native of an area that's very close to where I am right now in Bentonville, Arkansas, right up the road from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Kevin is comes from Ponca City, Oklahoma, yet now he lives on the island of Guernsey, which is just off the UK. So real briefly, Kevin, tell us how you got from Ponca City all the way over to Guernsey. You you know, you grow up in rural Oklahoma or in a small town in Oklahoma, you you tend to fly away somewhere. And I (laughs) I went away, I went away to graduate school at Vanderbilt and other places, but then ended up on a research project as a grad student in London. And kind of fell in love with living in London and stayed on and have have made the rest of my career here. 
Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And for those of you who may be wondering, the island of Guernsey, yes, is in fact where the Guernsey cow comes from. So if you know anything about um, cows and Guernseys, now you've got another connection into someone who lives there. It's illegal to bring any other type of cow onto the island. Oh, my God. Because we are the pure breed of the original Guernsey cow. How interesting is that? (laughs) All right. Well, let's now turn to the topic of uh, ESG and and all things environment, social and governance and the role that is now playing in the lives of um, organizations, uh, corporations that may have sort of sidelined the issue, but now seems to be sort of front and center. You've spent your career uh, really focused on an aspect of it that falls pretty squarely, and I would call it the social part of of, of ESG and and, and modern slavery. But for those in the audience who may not be familiar with that term, could you just tell us a bit about what that really means, what the current situation looks like when it comes to modern slavery? Sure. And, And, you know, one of the things that particularly Americans have is a picture in their mind of what slavery should look like. And they think about African Africans being brought over in chains and working in plantations, or they may be thinking about women in, who have been, again, brought from other countries and may be forced into commercial sexual exploitation, forced into kind of in prostitution in the United States. But I think the important thing to understand is that slavery is in many ways unchanged throughout most of human history. So we still have people making bricks with their hands the way they do in, in the Old Testament, when the Jews do it in, in, in Egypt. We have people digging and mining and all around the world and doing ag- being agricultural workers as they did in the Deep South before the Civil War and on and on. So if you can imagine almost any form of slavery, you can imagine a current form of slavery. Mm. And then you can bring all of that also rapidly, kind of in a flashy way into the mo- present moment, because of course, with all the technologies like the one that we're using right now to talk across thousands of miles, you can use this to exploit people in slavery. So I have a researcher, for example, who works simply on how are children exploited in slavery online? Which wow. Is a whole, a whole section, right? Yeah. That is. Figure out. Yeah. So technology actually being used for bad purposes. And, you know, we hear all about the privacy aspects of it for individuals, but this is another angle on how technology can actually be used uh, in a bad way. So all the more reasons to try to eradicate, eradicate that. Is it, does it exist everywhere, Kevin? I think a lot of people have this idea that it's, it's, you know, we, we got rid of slavery long ago, at least in the U S maybe in developing countries, it's there, but where does modern day slavery exist today? Everywhere. I mean, I, I, when I first began to work in this space, I thought, well, surely it won't be here or it won't be there. And I remember actually standing up and saying, as far as I can tell, it's definitely not in Iceland. And someone in the audience put their hand up and said, I'm a member of the Icelandic parliament and we have it too. Wow. And I thought, okay, well, if in Iceland, if it's, you know, a, a, an incredibly civilized and law-abiding place, which is small and in the North Atlantic. But in fact, we can't find a country in the world without slavery. And that's where the Global Slavery Index has been very important to do all of that research. There are a few tiny spaces and usually islands where you can be pretty sure that there isn't. This island that I live on with 61,000 people, we don't know, though though I have had some of the police come and chat with me about cases that have come come to the border, as it were, 
that they were very suspicious of hmm. and and were weren't quite sure how to handle because they hadn't had many of those. Mm-hmm. How interesting. How has COVID uh, affected um, modern day slavery? Have you had a chance yet to do any research into that about 18 months into COVID? And I know that's not a lot of time and it's still unfolding literally before our eyes, but I haven't done a lot personally, but in our lab, we've had actually several commissions to carry out work in that area. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and on the rights lab websites, I think there are new reports coming out about COVID. But the fundamental is this. In some countries, well, in virtually all countries, you know, COVID has made people vulnerable. It's, it's created situations where they've lost their work. It's created situations where they're, they're sometimes displaced from where they would normally be. Right. And that, those vulnerabilities are ones that exploiters who want to enslave people are very happy to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. In, in India, for example, one of the re- governmental responses to COVID was to tell all migrant workers to go home immediately, which basically meant that they spread COVID very rapidly over the whole country. Right. And then when those migrant workers got home, the state governments in India said, we're going to suspend labor rights laws. In other words, the laws that have to do with minimum wages and protections and safety at work are all suspended now to try to push the economy forward. I mean, it's kind of a sick notion that you would make it harsher on workers in order to somehow improve the economic performance of a country. But they did just that. So they basically both dislocated people, knocked them out of their work, and then stripped them of their rights. So you can (laughs) see As you can imagine, it led to tremendous vulnerability and exploitation. Well, sure. Yeah. With no minimum wage laws or anything else. I mean, now it's (laughs) you not only could be working for pennies if you were working and got displaced from your job and had, you know, other bills to pay, then, you know, some individuals may find themselves in a position of needing a job and taking one from somebody who says, oh, I I promise that I will pay you. um, uh, But first, you're going to have to, you know, work for a year and and then, you know, pay me for, for example, your room and board. And then after that, maybe then I'll start paying you some money so you can pay off your other debts, but I don't have to pay you any certain minimum wage anymore. I can, you know, pay no. you pennies. I mean, it's, that it, sounds like it's, it's exacerbated it. I was talking to a researcher in South Asia a couple of days ago, and they said, well, the classic story here is, is about women who've been working in textile production and right. And, and a lot of those clothes are for export into the United States and Europe and so forth. Right. But they were saying they had been so knocked about by COVID and by the regulations that they were showing up to people that had exploited them in the past in bad working conditions and low wages and saying, if you can just feed us, we'll work. They, if, if, if you're only feeding them and you can exert control over them at that point and use violence to, to maintain that control, we're, we're into slavery then. Yeah, we're going to have to really watch how this unfolds, I would say, in the next several years after COVID and and almost feels like on this topic, we've instead of taking a step forward, COVID has has caused us to take a step backwards, which I think raises the importance then, if you will, um, on corporations who are trying to, you know, get the engine going again for global trade. And we all know that the supply chain is a bit chunky. 
uh, right now, just as it is, just with getting products. And if you layer this issue on top, where companies may have had good auditing programs and were, you know, trying to audit their factories and and uh, uh, other places to make sure that they weren't. Uh, having any uh, modern day slavery in their supply chains, this probably adds a layer of complexity to it that maybe they hadn't considered before. So what do you think the impact is on the economy of modern day slavery? And is it continuing to increase given what we just talked about with COVID? We don't know the answer to it, whether or not it is, it's increasing. I mean, I yeah. think it, it's probably knocked some, some situations sideways, but I, the thing that I know from studying the criminals who enslave people across all different top parts of the economic sectors is that they are so highly adaptable. You know, criminals are, are really responsive to market change. They are. And they tend to keep a lot of cash around. They keep a lot of, of vehicles around in case they need to move fast. There and what it's it's not unlike what happens with natural disasters like hurricanes or tsunamis. Criminals they don't rush into those places and begin plucking up victims the way some people think they do. But what they do do is adapt very quickly mm. to the new changed situation. For example, what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina? There was a good amount of I think in uh, and local law enforcement did too of uh, enslavement into commercial sexual exploitation in the tourist trade in New Orleans. The hurricane comes through there and knocks the whole city to pieces. Right. Criminals who are running all that have no more use for women that they have enslaved to sell for sex. Mm. But very quickly, they realize we need to start enslaving people to do clearance work, taking out asbestos, rewiring, deconstruction, reconstruction. And suddenly there's a whole lot of workers from India, workers from Central America and so forth, who are caught up in slavery in New Orleans, rebuilding and debuilding, as it were, all the wrecked and crushed places. And it was just like that. I mean, they were so quick about it. Yeah. Wow. So let's jump now from this topic of, of kind of modern day slavery and this aha moment that you had a few years ago when you kind of sort of having this idea that it was somehow connected to the environment perhaps as well. So walk us through that that journey, which I think is really, really important for the audience to understand because companies these days when it comes to ESG are not only having to audit, they've got to figure out, right, how are we going to report out on areas that are material to us and all three areas, environment, social, and governance. So while they may have had a good auditing program for forced labor, now they're going to figure out what they're going to say about the environment. So let's just start with talking about how did you see those two connecting? It, it, was, it, it was a surprise to me in many ways in that I had worked for a number of years just trying to understand what modern slavery was about because we didn't uh-huh. know back in at the beginning of the thousands of 2000 you know people we did we didn't really have a handle on what it was and where it was uh-huh. so i went out looking for that and one of the things i would do when i did that of course is take a lot of pictures do a lot of interviews try to meet people in slavery and so forth it was later when i would get back and be analyzing and working through this one of the first things i noticed was that almost everywhere I had taken a picture of where people were being held and working in slavery, the the environment around them was trashed, destroyed, often just completely denuded. And I would think, wow, that's terrible. And then (laughs) it took me a little while to realize it was happening almost every place I went, especially in the developing world, that wherever there was slavery that was out of doors, 
the just the out of doors were completely devastated. Ah. But then I, I talked to some environmentalists who were very concerned about it. And they also said, oh, maybe it is the slavery. And I was saying, oh, maybe it is the environmentalists. <laughs> so, so we had this kind of, you know, work like that. And then I set out to actually to actually see if that could if that link could be demonstrated. Uh-huh. And when I did that and I went back into the field, back into into the gold mines, the illegal gold mines in Ghana, where they use slave labor, or the illegal mines that armed armed groups have in Eastern Congo, where they, they're digging all the minerals that we, we have in our laptops and our cell phones, or where they were doing fish and shrimp processing in, in camps, enslaved children in, in Bangladesh. And I, 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 I located these places, went to them as best I could, got up close and personal, and every place I went, I was able to see wow, this is a, a wrecked ecosystem. In, and a lot of these, and, and oh, note, every place I just mentioned was actually occurring within a protected national forest or in a UNESCO mm. World Heritage Site. So this wasn't just, there was some land we went out and, and, and raped it. It was, we went into those places which are special places to protect nature and protect endangered species. And that's where they really did the wreckage. And, I, and once I got that sorted in my head and saw it firsthand, I was also able to begin researching on how, how many places are like this around the world mm-hmm. and then doing the research that, that ultimately led to that shocking factoid that I couldn't even believe it when I first calculated it, which was that slavery, the work done by people in modern slavery was producing more CO2 into the air than any other country in the world except China and the United States. Oh my. So that Wait, is that when you combine it all together? Yeah, if you combine okay. it together. So if you take take the uh, particularly slave-based deforestation, slave-based brick making, slave-based a bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, you add it all together and it adds up to more CO2 than in than any individual country except China and the United States. So so how how have we arrived at this place in you know 2021 and we're sort of just now waking up if you will to this connection between the two like how 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 come um, that wasn't uh, uh, something that companies knew about before and were and were kind of paying attention to or do you think they like how do you explain that I it's well. Sometimes you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a good one. It's a good question about how that happens because there's, I think there's a lot of things that in life that all of us, it's like, we don't know it until we know it. And then we, yeah. when we know it, we feel like we've been slapped our, in our face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's and one of those. Exactly. It's one of those. And, and there was a moment that I did some consulting work years ago for Martin guitars. Now I don't know if you know Martin guitars, but they're the most famous of the American guitar companies. It's a family business. They make the best guitars. That's who all the rock stars play. They were concerned about this and talked to me because they said our whole generational family business relies on rare hardwoods from special jungles, and we're seeing this destruction. And we helped them with their supply chain and talked to Mm -hmm. them about that. And they would actually be planting special trees and special areas for harvesting in 200 years. Oh, my goodness. That's the way they, I mean, these are true artisans, right? Which is yes. why they're the best guitars in the world. Right. <laughs> but I mean, why I didn't wake up at that moment, I don't know. That should have been a hint too. Maybe it, maybe it was one of those little layers. Maybe that it was. Of, yeah. me over, 
think me over the top. Yeah, yeah. So do you do you have some thoughts on uh, then how how companies who are now trying to both audit but also report out on things like aspects of the environment where it could be material to their business? Um, any any hints or things that you think that companies should be looking at more to first aha have the aha moment understand what the connection might be and then how to go about changing that well the, i mean first is just to, to say be aware that they, these things do come together mm. so you know if you might have an environmental problem it might be a slavery problem and if you might mm -hmm. have a, a slavery problem it might also be an environmental problem mm -hmm. but that said i have to I have to admit and, and also say that, you know, as I actually document in really gritty detail in, in that book, mm -hmm. is that a number of these supply chains, because they are they, they're, the, the root is in slave labor, mm -hmm. means that there are a lot of people at, at the ground level who do their best to conceal it. So that you look at things like the minerals that are in our cell phones and, right. and you say, well, how do I know that that's clean? Well, you can you can trace that supply chain back. It's got more than 20 links, but you can trace it back, trace it back. And you'll get to these people who are processing the minerals and they'll say, no, this is clean. We got it from this place. And this, and they'll say, and here's a certificate that says we got it from that place. But if you poke and push a little bit further, you'll find counterfeit certificates. You'll find, in a sense, mineral lobbying, a, a, a laundering, mineral laundering, where they'll be mining it in the Congo, but then sneaking it across the border into Rwanda. I mean, it's very interesting. Coltan is one of those one of those minerals, and Rwanda is one of the world's largest exporters of coltan, but it has no coltan within its actual boundaries. Oh my god. Or borders, right? So it's coming from somewhere. And where it's coming from is across the border in, in the Congo. So what I what I'm saying is you have to you have to be willing to dig hard mm -hmm. and I, that's, you know, I, you know, it's hard when a business faces up to that, mm -hmm. you have to say this could cost money and this could take time. Yeah, that's just going to say money, it's time, it's resources, it's it's going all the way back through. Like you said, sometimes it's 20, sometimes more steps. Yeah. Um, and where, you know, where where responsibility in the past and and resources may have allowed companies to go one or two steps back going from two to 20 is that's that's really huge but i think there's an answer to that and that is and then i think we've been we've seen the success of the answer which is it's one of those moments where you have to kind of take a deep breath and reach out to your competitors mm. say guys let's get together on this that worked incredibly well with cocoa and chocolate mm. i was part of the group that founded the original international cocoa initiative when all the major chocolate companies got together with a little prompting, almost like a shotgun wedding, to tell the truth, from, <laughs> from some US senators, right? They didn't have much of a choice. But they, they, were, they agreed that they would form a group to look at the cocoa supply chain together, and they would together bankroll the work necessary to improve and collect the information and actually remedy the situation on the ground. Uh. And, and they've done just that. I mean, they're always being picked on I had, by some groups that, sadly, I think, NGOs that, that say, oh, if I talk about chocolate and babies and Valentine's Day and Easter bunnies, yeah. you know, they, I can really make a splash. But the right. truth is, 
the chocolate companies have poured more money into fixing that supply chain than per, per capita proportionally, I think, than anybody else. And they've done a good job because I've been on the ground where they used to have slavery in parts of Ghana and the Ivory Coast. And now, no. Now, there's still some there and they're still working on it, but they're still working on it and they're still working on it as a group. Likewise, a lot of the major uh, electronics groups, mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the name of their their coalitional organization. But all the big ones, Apple and everybody else, they all belong to a group that works on those conflict minerals and slave-based minerals that go into electronics. And they've made some real progress on it. But you have to, you know, reaching out and getting your, yeah. getting to into bed, as it were, or maybe right. just in the same sitting room yeah. with, with your competitors, right, <laughs> right. right. Is, is tricky enough. Yeah, it is. But recognizing that there are some issues, quite frankly, where, say, the institution of business as an institution needs to needs to lead and and that that, that modern day slavery, if you will, and, and damage to the environment isn't um, something that that should be considered a competitive secret, but something that we all as no, humans no. have a joint interest in improving um, is it is an important step to take? I think on these larger issues that go beyond competing another, on what products you sell. Another key part to this has to do with when you have those regulations or laws or agreements that that get people to to look at their own supply chains and then publish a report, like the California Transparency Law, which we brought into the UK and made it the national law oh, wow. in the UK that we have a transparency law that says all companies above a certain size have to talk about exactly what they're doing mm -hmm. to prevent slavery in their supply chains. Mm -hmm. The reason why that's important is because before there was any law like the California law, before there were any transparency laws, any company that tended to put their head above the parapet mm -hmm. and say, you know what, we hate to tell you this, but we've been looking hard and turns out there's slavery in our supply chain. Mm -hmm. they would just get crucified. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. A, as opposed to, you know, you would you would hope people would say, finally, a company and they're, they're being honest about their problems. And they want to make it clear and they want to show that they're working on it like that. No, it was like, then we'll just. <laughs> yeah. But if you spread it, if you spread it across a as a requirement across all companies or you share it, within your, your, your coalition of companies for whatever your supply chain is, you, you can take away that fear, or at least a lot of that fear. A lot and, of it. And of course, I think, you know, there's, you always have to consider the legal liability as well and other things that other companies, that companies may face for the, and they have to weigh the balance of all of that. But you're right. What we should be after is transparency and, and authenticity and trying to get better, you know, recognize where we are on a journey as, as a human race on this issue and get better uh, as we tend to fight it. But I, I want to go back to something you said about the 20 links in the chain and, and bring technology into this conversation and talk about the, the rights lab if, if for a few minutes here. So when you think about a supply chain and going all the way back and, and uh, you were mentioning some, you know, fabricated documentation, it, it would seem to me that as we go from two steps to 20 and trying to, you know, have companies look further back, that technology could really be our friend here um, with things like, I don't know, blockchain or other, you know, forms of, of technology to help. Tell me a little bit about the Rights Lab that you're a research director at and, and how you see um, technology perhaps helping in this space. Sure. Um, well, the Rights Lab is, a, is about 100 researchers altogether uh, in, a, in, a, in a big physical space, though we're, we're all dis dispersed now because of COVID and like that. Yeah. Um, and we're all working on modern slavery all the time. Uh, 
but the key thing here is that we're also divided into a number of teams. Uh, some are much more concerned with technology than others. So there's, you know, there's a community all about local communities team. And so, uh -huh. uh, but we do have a, but we have a t one team, which is all about the, both the environment and about earth observation. Mm -hmm. And we, we have a, it's basically what I, I think of it as the satellites team, because one of the key things that we've been making breakthroughs with lately is using satellite imagery, which now companies are sharing with us because they, they kind of, I mean, the big satellite companies are just giving us their pictures because they're so excited about the fact that we can crack some of the problems Wow! Uh, that are allowing us to, for example, using a type of ground penetrating camera from a from a satellite in parts of Tanzania, we were able to show where there was illegal mining going on in the suburbs of a city and where the slavery was most likely to be happening because it was showing that the earth itself wasn't as sound as it should have been. Does huh. that make sense? It's hard. I know it's good. I, I think. Say that one more time. Well, it's like a ground penetrating radar. Ah, got it. Okay. Yes. And they could say, oh, and there was like, were there, are they, my, where is this? What, how is this possible? These were not, you couldn't see these things, but you could. Or for example, we just had a big report published about work that we've done with the government of Greece. And we used satellite imagery of, 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 to, of tomato fields which were using um, refugees. The, the, the workers had, were basically refugees from Syria who should have been being taken care of, but in fact, they'd been caught up and enslaved to do this agricultural work. But we could see that the densities of these workers and the way that they were being spread in the fields was not like it would be with a normal work crew. Not, uh, you know, it does, it's not like that. I mean, almost anywhere you can find significant amounts of work going on on the ground using satellite imagery, where there should be equipment, but there's no equipment, like mining, right? Mines mm -hmm. should have big trucks and big diggers and all this kind of stuff. And if you've got places where all that's happening, but it's all being done by hand, that's almost always going to be slave labor. That's a clue. Yeah, that's that's a clue. And that's how technology can be used for good with those satellite images. I'm sure that helps when everything's outside. Probably not so much if you're talking about inside a building or inside a factory. Well, now, now we're almost into that space that I can barely explain because my colleagues are so far ahead of me. But wow. we're, you know, there's that, there is that thing that we don't have artificial intelligence because that doesn't actually exist yet, right? There's no such thing. But there is this thing called machine learning. Right, right, which does exist, which is about the machine is able to work through a whole bunch of different scenarios and begin to figure out stuff that you can't see yourself. Uh -huh. We've been using that, for example, in another country in Africa, where we know in big in these big slum cities there are patterns of slavery going on, but we're collecting data and we're collecting even things like we've got access to their cell to cell phone data, so we can see how much money is being transferred from phone to phone to location to location, and then link that to crime rates and to people who are working at weird hours and crowding and people without tools. And then also we send people in to just do surveys on the ground that we then layer with all of this stuff and let the machine learning go through all that data. And they say, okay, so, well, the machine does. Right. If you're, if you're wanting to, to really crack this, go to this place not that place. Wow, how interesting. That might be a huge technological advancement. Um, 
in terms Not of the issues. Yeah, nice. I know, I know. But the fact that there's a there is a rights lab with a group of people that are working in that space is uh, is certainly encouraging. So that's that's really good to it hear. It makes me excited. I have to say, I love working with these guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Kevin, this has been just a very illuminating conversation. Thank you so much oh, for sharing goodness. your knowledge with us in this space. And I always like to leave on one last question, which is um, if if there's somebody in the audience who's listening to all of this and wants to learn a little bit more more uh, about ESG, modern day slavery, how all of that may tie together. Do you have some good resources that you could recommend, either books or documentaries, podcasts, anything? Well, funny you should ask. I mean, I, <laughs> I, you think I'm about to mention my own book, but I'm not, because what I did just before we got together was I emailed to Halley uh, an article that's just come out. It's open access, and it's all about almost everything that we've just talked about. Oh, wow. But it's a short, tight article. That's great. That's great. Okay. Well, we'll be sure to post that in the show notes so yeah. that uh, everybody has a chance to read that and they can deepen their knowledge there. And I'm sure that'll take them off in a number of different directions. Kevin, this has just been fascinating and it's just wonderful to be able to talk to somebody via technology who's across the ocean on an island in Guernsey, but lo and behold, started right out here in a local space from Punka City, Oklahoma. So thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Looking forward to when I get over there when I can. I agree. It was great to connect with you. Thanks, Kevin. You bet. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.